We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome back to another episode of The Meaning of Health. How are you this week, Courtney? I'm doing fairly well. How are you? Yeah, very good. Uh, We've had a bit of timely rain here in Perth. Yes. As as we were recording today. Yeah, we did have like a good week or so of uh, really nice weather, Mm. I felt. Um, But then suddenly winter is here. That's it. And yeah, uh, yeah, obviously we're under some restrictions for those who are in Perth. They don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, that's, yep, yep. So got all those masks on and stuff, which is always fun. Yeah, it's a bit of a novelty for us. Uh, hasn't happened <laughs> shouldn't a whole brag lot. too much. <laughs> yeah, we've been pretty lucky. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think people are going to very quickly tire of the whole thing. Oh, so. yeah, absolutely. I already have seen a number of people just doing what they want without yeah. masks on outside, yeah. uh, which is always fun. <laughs> yeah. Gives us a bit more perspective on how people in certain other countries have behaved over the last year mm. and gotten frustrated and whatnot. And mm-hmm. obviously we're looking from a distance saying, well, how come they're so angry? And Yeah. And then after three days we're like, <laughs> eh, take masks off, I can't be bothered anymore. <laughs> anyway, fingers crossed that things around the world get better. Yeah. And obviously locally, you know, that we don't have too many more issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we were very lucky to just have a guest from Albany in the States South on the podcast today, Dr... Well, associate professor actually Matthew Common, who is actually a doctor as well, psychiatrist. Uh, really interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, um, as a, a very brief summary, we talk a lot about addiction and uh, drugs and ways we can treat that, and all the perspectives on like mm. policy and environments and all sorts of stuff. Mm. Um, but it doesn't go quite in the way that we thought it would. I don't think because we, there was a couple of topics that we were meant to talk about. Yeah, but we didn't. He's, he's very. He's obviously very passionate about. Uh, adolescent addiction and psychiatry mm. and then also rural psychiatry and yeah. we we really spoke a lot about the addiction psychiatry uh, issues but not didn't really touch too much on the rural stuff so I think we if Matt has the time in the future <laughs> we will invite him back on to discuss that because that's an equally big and important issue uh, with equally big and important implications Definitely. for people living in rural and remote areas. Mm. Uh, and as you, you'll hear in our conversation, there's obviously issues around the number of people practising in these mm-hmm. regions. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's something that I think warrants an, uh, a more in-depth conversation. Yep. Yeah, if we can do it. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> yeah, we'll hopefully be able to fit that in. Um, but anyway, for now, have a listen and, uh, yeah, roll the music. Enjoy. I'd like to welcome Associate Professor Matthew Common to the podcast today. Uh, welcome, Matthew. Hi, Craig. And so, thanks very much for joining us uh, today from Albany, I believe. Lovely, sunny, but sometimes cold, Albany. <laughs> yeah. So, we are doing this one via Zoom, which we haven't done in a little while. But... Which was funny because I was actually in Albany maybe like a weekend ago. And we got like the perfect sunshine weekend. It was so good. Um, but could have done it then, but didn't even think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know it's a few degrees cooler down there, but uh, yeah, I've had plenty of sunshine in Albany in the past as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so uh, Matthew, uh, do you want to tell us and the listeners a bit about yourself, what your, your educational background is and some of the previous work you've done and also your current position? 
Yeah, so I'm a um, uh, consultant psychiatrist. So um, that means that I uh, formally did my medical degree many decades ago and then um, uh, subsequently have um, undertaken specialist postgraduate training in psychiatry. And in, um, in that process also did some subspecialty training in addiction psychiatry over in um, uh, Sydney and also child and adolescent psychiatry, which is a bit of an unusual combination. Mm. And um, uh, at the time people thought that I was going to be an adolescent substance use specialist, which I guess by <laughs> default I, I perhaps could claim uh that um, title, but um, I'd always been keen to uh, work and live in rural locations. And so, although the psychiatry training is a generalist pathway, you know, generalist training, you do a little bit of everything, I felt that um, undertaking some, some additional specialist, subspecialist skills would place me well in a rural and regional context so i just wanted to be a half decent regional <laughs> psychiatrist and uh um ironically in western australia the idea of uh, addiction psychiatry is um um is evident to the lay person but not to the system and uh, i'm one of very few addiction uh, qualified addiction psychiatrists in western australia despite our our problems and um, uh, being a child and adolescent psychiatrist, or at least doing the training, enables you to, to think um, developmentally. And uh, we've all been children once, and we know that um, that the onset of mental disorders often occurs in, in childhood or adolescence. And so I just felt it was a, a good combination to do. So I've um, so that led me to become a regional psychiatrist, not sure about the half-decent bit, but a regional <laughs> psychiatrist. And um, uh, inevitably, when you work in regional mental health um, services and settings, you get an opportunity, you know, it's a great um, environment to get lots of opportunities because there's very few of us. So um, I'm also the clinical director of the service down here and work for the West Australian Country Health Service half-time. And the other half-time, I've been um, really fortunate to... Um, develop a, an academic uh, career with the Rural Clinical School of Western Australia, which is a, a tripartite um, uh, organisation um, initially led and still predominantly led by University of Western Australia, but um, our partners are the other medical schools in, in uh, WA, which is Notre Dame and more recently Curtin University. So it's this um, awesome opportunity to... Um, to work with uh, generalist colleagues throughout Western Australia and um, undertake research and advocacy work and, um, and, and to teach up and coming, hopefully, rural doctors. Mm -hmm. and, and do, do you do the teaching down there in Albany and is, is that where people are studying or...? Well, yeah, so the Rural Clinical School, at last count, I can't remember, it's 13 or 15 sites, literally from one end of the state, from Kununurra up in the far northeast, all the way down to Esperance in the far southeast. Um, but there's um, uh, locations throughout um, West, uh, country Western Australia and, and of varying sizes, obviously, according to the resources that are available in each town. We have small sites like Derby and, and Carnarvon um, to the larger sites, including Albany, Bunbury, Broome. Um, 
and I say this because my my position, um, uh, I'm one of the few, if only, actually only psychiatrists. So there's very few specialists in the rural clinical school, which is which is a marked contrast to the sort of training, um, the clinical training that you get in the city, which is largely siloed. And if you're doing a surgical rotation, you know, you end up with a subspecialist surgeon. Whereas in the country, it's largely, um, the teaching's largely done by general practitioners mm-hmm. who are generalists. And so they've, um, you know, can cover the, the whole curriculum, which I think is probably a better way to to um, learn medicine from a generalist. And, and it um, it's one of those um, um, key aspects that, makes me parochial about the rural clinical school <laughs> but being a, the only psychiatrist um on the on the books means that i have this unusual position which they is referred to as the psychiatry coach and um uh, it uh, i asked for many years what that was about and eventually they bought me a whistle to say um to fit the 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 task but my my job's to sort of keep an eye on the overall integrity of the curriculum and exams and to support the the medical coordinators at the different sites to to deliver psychiatry. So it's a long-winded question to say, I have a little bit to do with the Albany students, but I need to share myself across across the whole um across the whole state. Mm. Yeah. So why did you originally choose psychiatry as your specialty? Because um, I, I, I have a couple of doctor friends and there's a lot of uh, uh, rumours and opinions about psychiatrists and other specialties. <laughs> so I, I'm always very interested as to why people choose psychiatry. Yeah, um, I, I, it, it's interesting because I started physiotherapy before I went to uh, med school at Flinders University in South Australia, originally grew up in in uh, the western suburbs of Sydney, and um, and so in a, when I started my medical training, I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon because it was the most <laughs> familiar. But I, f- I found psychiatry to be um, one of the more interesting um, subjects in med school, and um, it seemed to to me to offer a potential career that I could never ever master yeah um and um, i'm sure my colleagues in surgery eventually master certain procedures and um i think i'm i'm a i'm well i know i'm a novelty seeker and a bit fickle (laughs) fickle with my attention span and so um uh psychiatry has always interested me because i've really i've come to realize that although i might be a specialist i've never quite mastered anything in psychiatry Mm -hmm. and uh, i always learn something new from the next person that i see or family that i'm involved with and and it's a it's an area in in medicine which goes from the very personal um you know patient you know, one-on-one contact to another role that I've got, which is with, um, I'm a commissioner with the National Mental Health Commission. So really talking about public policy and and even in the recent, um, uh, you know, in the global pandemic that's COVID, um, even having discussions around the mental health implications of economic policies um, mm-hmm. and being able to, to um, uh you know, have those sorts of discussions and be involved in in that sort of policy level has it, has it reflects the ex- expansive nature of um, psychiatry and mental health. And um, 
I always sort of use the phrase, unfortunately, it's also a growing industry. And I think that, you know, the 21st century, when our physical health is so much better than it was in previous centuries, it's really come to the fore that our mental health requires equal and if not, you know, more focused um, efforts to improve both mm. individual and collective public mental health as well. So um, mm. it's a, and it's a, you know, it's it can be rewarding and frustrating in a matter of seconds. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree that it's it's in in my mind I kind of call it like a new science. Um, mm. And I have a undergrad in psychology, so like in the Venn diagram, there's a slight crossover there. And mm. one of the things that I realized, I guess, in psychology is that like all of it is so new and exciting and we don't really understand much of it. And I'd feel the same kind of applies for psychiatry as well. And it's, I guess it's something, you know, we know physical disease is a bit better than our mental health. Yeah. And there's the, there's the science to it and there's, um, and that, um, uh, that endeavor to learn and understand more and develop concepts and, you know, beyond concepts and proof, but there's, um, uh, just like in psychology, there's an art to it as well and a, and a very humanities um, perspective. So it's this nice melding of the sciences and the arts and the humanities that um, uh, um, that um, keeps me entertained from one day yeah. to the next and engaged. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'd say it's, it's a lot about responding to your environment and, you know, reflecting what the people in front of you are saying and you, you maybe can't physically see their issues but so you have to rely on what they're describing and their behavior don't you a bit more indeed and and it's it's not only about learning um from and about other people and family systems but um there's also inevitably a, a journey of learning about yourself <laughs> and um uh and um and that's that's um, important and it's a part of your professional development, but it's also part of your own personal development, I think, which is, um, um, uh, yeah, just reflect on uh, the, the timing in which I did my child, child and adolescent training was when I was having my first child. And so, you oh, know, no. you, can, you, can, you, you can take as much from that as you, as you want, but that, that in, endeavor to be the best parent and realize, you know, all I am is qualified to know how poorly I'm doing. <laughs> did, so did you, did you compare when you, when you had your first child? I was like, oh no, I'm doing this. My child is going to have this when it's older because of well, you the can't way that help I've it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like um, you know when you're going through med school, you get every condition mm. you're learning about, mm -hmm. and um, it's a bit like that when you're parenting. But uh, I've taken solace and um, in in some of the concepts of um, you know people like um, Winnicott, where good enough parenting is the best kind of parenting. So I've, yeah. I got I, I, I'm qualified to to let myself off the hook. Yeah, that's great. So you're a good enough parent. Uh, yeah, just. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you need, just passing yeah. grades. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Now, I wanted to uh, just chat briefly about you. You mentioned that you're an addiction psychiatrist or you specialise in adolescent addiction issues, which would imply that you deal with dual diagnosis perhaps in your practice. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, that's that's why I became a, that's why I went and did addiction uh, training because I don't think that you can be a psychiatrist and not um, uh, well, you can not be interested, but you can. I don't think you can be a psychiatrist and ignore um, 
people who also experience addictions. Um, our system, and it's interesting you use the phrase dual diagnosis because that's a service-driven definition. <laughs> you know, there's no duality in the person. They've that's got right. problems. Yeah. The duality is in the system and yeah. that we have a mental health system and a drug and alcohol system. And, um, well, allegedly, and uh, in, <laughs> in, Western, in Western Australia. Yeah, we um, do. It's what, one, of my, one of my bugbears. But, but um, uh, fundamentally, you know, it's, um, when I'm teaching medical students or registrars, trainees in psychiatry or whomever, um, people don't use substances to make their skin look better or feel better. They use it to affect their mental state. Mm. And, and if I'm, uh, for whatever reason, whether it be because of trauma or they indeed become dependent and they, they're, you know, trying to ward off withdrawal symptoms or because they're distressed or bored or whatever, um, it's, it's, to, it's part of the human condition that, in, um, that many of us use substances and many of us, um, the substances start to use us and, um, and that's to affect mental states. And if I'm not interested in a mental state as a psychiatrist, then I'm in trouble. I'm in the wrong, <laughs> wrong league. And that's one of the frustrations in WA in, is that, you know, um, I, I actually needed to move myself and my family to, to New South, back to New South Wales, unfortunately, the last thing I really wanted to do. But to get um, subspecialist training, I needed to do that because it wasn't available in WA. It's been available for a small period of time in addiction psychiatry. And to this day, WA has graduated two addiction psychiatrists. That's it. One has left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did um, they because- go? Well, there was no no employment. They wanted oh, to be an addiction psychiatrist, so, so mm. there's no positions, specific positions, and it, and that's all he wanted to do. So he he left the eastern states, and last count, he was in <laughs> in Europe. And and the other person I've convinced to work here, in Albany. Um, <laughs> so we've got like our whole entire addiction psychiatrist in Albany. Well, but even then, you know, the crazy thing is when I came, when I finished my subspecialty qualifications, I wanted to come back to regional WA. And so here I am, here I was with a, you know, um, this unusual mix of um, specialist qualifications and subspecialist qualifications in addiction and child and adolescent. And the only position at the time that I that was available for me in Albany was as a general adult psychiatrist. Right. So I took it, mm. you know, and some of my colleagues aren't prepared to do that. They work for 15 years to become an addiction specialist. And yeah. so, so it's, and, and the, at the moment, the, the pro, there's, there isn't, there is no way in which um, any psychiatry trainee can undertake addiction training in, I think in, that's uh, what, what in, you're in WA. So, yeah, I think what you're raising there is really f- interesting and, you know, really topical um, because, yeah, we, we've had a guest on the epi- on the podcast before who worked at Next Step and he was a general practitioner uh, specialising in addiction. Okay, yep. so obviously, obviously his practice at some stage crosses into psychiatry because it has to. Cause he's, it that, does, yeah. Yeah, yep. um, yeah and it, I just find it fascinating because we've got a, a seemingly quite well-funded mental health commission now that are responsible for a lot of the funding for mental health services in WA. And we've actually got a forensic psychiatrist kind of as the chief health officer of mental health now, or chief yep. medical officer of mental health, I think is her title. Correct. Sophie Davidson, yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've had a 
bit to do with Sophie because I work in the prison space and I just wonder if the, if we're going to see some changes in how the system operates because you just hear horror stories of people being turned away from both alcohol and drug services and mental health services because they've got what's deemed a psychiatric issue and a drug issue. And, and um, there lies the absolute shame of our system and uh, one of my mantras is that uh, you know, and I, I ask the rhetorical question both to clinicians and also to desperate family members and desperate people who have substance problems and combination of substance problems and mental health problems. You know, are you welcome in the health system? And we know what the answer is. They're not welcome at all. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, there, of course, there are individuals who are devoting their, their efforts to, you know, to... Uh, patients to consumers, clients, um, families, the system. But fundamentally, if uh, you have a substance problem, you, you, the experience of people is they're not welcome at an emergency department, even though they might be an extremist, you know. And, and so to me, every time somebody presents with a, with a problem, whether it's the primary problem is a substance issue or, you know, that's the cause that got them there and they've broken their leg or whatever. Um, every time they present to a health scene. And um, uh, that's, just a, that's just tragic in my, in my mind that we've got a health system that um, uh, isn't going to... Um, uh, provide the sort of care, the timely response that people need. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we, we have actually also had an emergency specialist on the podcast before who's actually working in Albany now. You might know him, David McCutcheon. I know. Yeah, I know David, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he also works out of Royal Perth. That's right, yeah. So he's, yeah. I think he's sort of needed a bit of a break from the city and I think he's doing his own PhD. Um, but, yeah, he was sort of talking about that, you know, a lot of the patients in emergency are people with drug issues essentially that have need acute care to, to sort of get them through a tough tough patch. And, and I feel for my um, my colleagues, my, my um, emergency um, physician colleagues and my psychiatry colleagues who are in this situation and feel and don't have um, – the opportunity to do specific training or access addiction specialists and expertise or a system that's been set up with the expertise and leadership and knowledge to be able to provide sometimes quite challenging care for people. It's not easy work, you know. Mm. It's important work. It's challenging. But all those um, foundations in the, at least in the health system, the state health system, are not there. And so it becomes an extraordinarily difficult task for um, the nursing staff, the, the, you know, the medical staff, the allied health staff in, in situations where they're overwhelmed because they don't know what to do. There's nowhere to turn. There's limited resources. Um, people continually present with what can seemingly from a, from a, you know, an outsider's perspective, uh, be something that that seems really difficult to to change, but the reality is is that, um, and sadly, um, 
but fortunately, many people remit on their own. You know, they, they're able to come to terms with it. But how many people don't and how many people die? You know, WA now is leading the nation in unintentional drug deaths in Australia. And I think that's that's a, a key figure that's been reported on twice in the last uh, 12 months. Once, uh, first time by the Pennington Institute, which does an annual report on unintentional um, uh, drug deaths. And then more recently, uh, a sort of replication study by the National Drug Research, uh, National Drug and Alcohol Research um, Centre out of University of New South Wales. Um, and, and we used to be at the back of the pack. We used to, you know, have quite a, 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 a low death rates, but now we're leading the nation. And so that's not just in illicit substances. This is also in prescribed substances. So when when general practitioners get them get into run into strife by their own prescribing, you know, mm-hmm. not intentionally, but these things do occur. And we've got medications now which can be very complex and tricky. And you know, the 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 demand for the a pill for every ill is quite high in Australia, and we want medications. And but when people run into trouble, run into strife, whether it be with prescribed opiates because of chronic pain problems, or benzodiazepines because of, or antidepressants or mood stabilizers because of mental health reasons, and then they become dependent, where do, where does that person and that prescriber turn to to get help in our system because yeah. there's very little addiction expertise, and so yeah. we're, we're so that's you know and and we just don't well we the 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 um, policymakers the funders the providers don't seem to have their head around it uh, around the the complexity of the problem but also I think it's easy to maintain the discrimination and marginalization of marginalized groups in in you know society yep. um, we, we've got a tendency to rely on a, a very moral you know approach to substance use it's all about choice well it might have been at some point but um, there's clear evidence that once people go beyond um, uh, you know intermittent substance use that it can take on a life of its own and that includes people with with um, medical conditions through their through their GP Mm. and and um, and so our approach in WA and in in the Western world has been the war on drugs Mm. and just say no well, you know, and so all the it's all the research that easy. <laughs> and all the research, all the research that we do and that we've done tells us, you know, like we when you, when you're uh, an advocate and a researcher and a clinician in this space and you're trying to demonstrate good science, and good evidence behind um, interventions and sometimes, you know, evidence behind bad interventions, um you're, you're, you know, you you spend an inordinate amount of time, and thank you very much for the opportunity to do some advocacy work <laughs> um, to prove something. Yet the war on drugs has been proven again and again and again and again. It does not work. Yet mm. we flog that dead horse, and we flog that approach, and no one questions that because it's easy to be angry and take the high moral ground when you're sober, when you don't have a substance problem, and and so I I you know really welcome the 
the um, the emphasis on hearing from um, people who are affected and families, but but unfortunately, you know, because of their despair, it often comes with lots of anger and lots of frustrations. But it's 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 one of those social justice issues that I think makes it really easy to be on the right side of the argument. Mm-hmm. But gee, it's hard work. <laughs> yeah. well, why do you think those foundations in like our mental health commission and stuff uh, are missing for people with addiction. Diseases. Well, it's a it's a, it's a um, perpetuating problem, isn't it? If you don't have mm-hmm. the expertise and the clinical leadership or the the um, knowledge basis and the experience, then when you ask the questions, what should we do? You get mm-hmm. <laughs> an experience, <laughs> lack of leadership. You know, yeah. and, and so mm-hmm. I don't mean to be, be uh, I'm not um, trying to be critical of the people trying their darndest but until you start to say there's a knowledge gap we've got a you know there's this gaping hole in our health system and um um you know if you ask the wrong questions to the wrong people you're going to get the wrong answers it was funny i was at uh oh not funny <laughs> uh, i was at a i was at a uh a meeting with some, I better be careful, with some high-level government types mm-hmm. that were, were, we were talking about this exact problem and they reflected on, but we had a, you know, it was around methamp- uh, meth- the methamphetamine epidemic, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they said, but we had um, a session where we went down to a southern part of the city um, and, and asked people at that particular hospital, what should we do? And we got a really good response. It was that people with these problems should go elsewhere to a specialist specialist, specialist place to get help. And so the the policy response is, well, let's have a methamphetamine crisis centre so that they can go there. Well, What are they going to do there? Well, and, 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 and intuitively, if you've got no experience, that might be reasonable but it's like but they're not presenting there Mm. you know and and of course people without the training and expertise and the experience would say we don't know what to do can't they go elsewhere Mm -hmm. so when you ask a question that's ill-informed of people who who don't have the answers because they're not you know experts guess what the the answer is it's not terribly informed and terribly useful so i i I kind of had to highlight that this makes no sense (laughs) you know Mm. if if you're if you want to ask a question about neurosurgery you ask a neurosurgeon you don't ask you know someone who's got no expertise in it that's intuitive sense but um but but so there's a so so again it's not a criticism it's more of observation we don't have that expertise and that leadership that has the knowledge and and experience and qualifications to be able to progress the way and and that's going to take a while and that's going to take serious investment and a change in culture and structure it seems fairly clear that the generations going through medical school now will be well aware of the need for this, whereas maybe past generations, maybe not so much. It's, it must be being acknowledged that this, you know, we've, we've seen increased rates of overdose deaths and, you know, methamphetamine use and, you know, really problematic methamphetamine use and, and this sort of things. So surely there's, there must be a generation of trainee doctors coming through that think, oh, this is an area that's worth focusing on. 
Oh, trend. Craig, you always know you're in trouble when you say surely. <laughs> <laughs> I think oh, that's no. called something like the false consensus effect. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, um, uh, I, like your, I like your optimism, but I guess I, um, I'm... Um, Again, it goes to that fundamental problem of are we are we training and educating and 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 there's there's modelling that occurs in your clinical years as a medical student. You know, you're 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 very anxious. You think I don't know a single thing, and you go out there to your clinical placements and you watch and you you in you know you interject the the reactions of of the people that are teaching you and um or, and you know if if you're um uh, if you're learning about a part of the health system where the health system says these people aren't welcome here, we do not do this, then I really fear that you're still going to incorporate that. Now I'm I'm immensely optimistic in young people um, being youth psychiatrists because um, you know there's one thing that I just cannot stand is older people saying oh the youth are today because it's just nonsense actually the <laughs> The, you know, people, and so I, I, I agree with you. I think the people that are coming through, the generations that are coming through medical school now are much more sensible than previous generations. There's no doubt about that. The evidence is there. Um, and so um, so I'm hopeful, but gee, they're going to have to find their own way because um, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's not a great environment in Western Australia out there for for the addiction um, health space. Mm. We'll let it go. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealth at outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. So it's clearly an issue that seems to disproportionately affect people from a lower socioeconomic status communities. Um, obviously, it, it, it goes beyond that. It goes to all parts of society. But in some of the work I've done in the prisons, it clearly seems to touch them more um, than anyone else. So, I mean, are you maybe suggesting that we need to look at a grassroots kind of led approach where, you know, consumers and consumer advocates and whatnot are sort of paving the way for change? Because it seems like the top-down approach, that it seems like, you know, policymakers might be a bit out of touch a lot of the time. I think I think um, the recognition of people's lived experience and um, uh, needs to be incorporated into the system. There's no doubt about that. But I think what you're touching on is recognition of the social determinants of health. Mm. And, uh, you know, the irony of what we've just been talking about of, you know, on the one hand, we'd like to be able to say, you know, cynically uh that uh, substance problems is a choice and it's a you know um people should be responsible for their own actions yet there's clear social determinants with with all sorts of health problems and we know that that's not a choice where you're born into what socio demographics you're in um what color of your skin is you know none of that's choice um so so We've got some real maturing to do uh, in the health space. That's that's also um, that butts up against 
those social determinants of health. We love to think that um, it's all about the clinical space and that if I can get a U-Butte pill or a U-Butte machine, <laughs> I'm going to sort all this out. But in actual fact, um, uh, and we don't, we don't highlight it enough in clinical training, but those social determinants of health are, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, far stronger, far more influential in determining the outcomes of whether of, you know, general health and well-being, even um, uh, when it comes to, um, you know, recovery from psychosocial disability or mental illnesses, those social determinants are going to play a bigger role than anything that I can prescribe. Um, and, and that comes down to opportunities, finances, supports, um, discrimination, stigma, marginalisation. And we need to think in a more mature and 21st century <laughs> way about how we uh, organise our health services and how we support people to live fuller, healthier, productive lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that kind of feeds into uh, what you said before about people saying we should have a specialist centre for people to go to rather than just going to the places that they go to when they've got a health crisis, you know? Exactly. You know, how many hospitals are there across Western Australia and we want to build 10 bed specialist unit because <laughs> that'll sort it out. You know, it's just yeah. crazy. You need those specialist centres, but they, they, they should be embedded in existing services yeah. so that um, we can train the next generation. We can um, uh, uh, pull some of our resources where the need is is the highest, and then be able to eventually grow a system that can, you know, trickle out to the the smaller centres. And that if you've got a, a substance problem, you can present to the, you know, Condinen, um nursing post, and you'll be able mm. to get some help. You yeah, know, ironically, you probably get better help than turning up to some of the larger centres that can be in health uh, clinic <laughs> because it's personal, yeah. you yeah. know. And, uh, but, you know, that, that, that's to me um, uh, seems to be the, the, the better way to go. We wouldn't do this with infectious diseases. So, well, actually, just if you've got an infectious disease, can you just go somewhere else? That kind of almost reminds me of, like, what we used to do with people with leprosy. It's like, yeah, just yeah. go beyond the wall. That's fine. We'll leave you there. <laughs> yeah, and and that's that's exactly what I was just thinking of as well. You know, that's and we've realised that's not the approach to take. Um, uh, and um, and um, substance use problems affects all all parts of society, and um, um, you know, in particular, uh, doctors. You know, doctors have higher rates. It's interesting. You know, I talk to medical students, and I say to them as they're coming in, it's a terrible <laughs> reflection as they're coming into medical school. I say, "Congratulations! You know, you're highly successful, largely perfectionistic, obsessional people, and competitive, and well done getting in. And you've probably got better mental health than the general population. But sadly, when you become a doctor, you'll have worse mental health than the general population. And, mm -hmm. and you know, high rates of substance problems. And, mm -hmm. and even with our own profession, um, uh, you know, it's sad indictment how we still marginalise and discriminate and stigmatise people with substance mm -hmm. problems when many, many in our own ranks have problems. 
Yeah. So staying on this theme of of, uh, addiction and uh, issues, you know, mental health issues related to addiction, you you did some work recently looking at mandatory treatment for methamphetamine use in Australia, which is how you came to my attention. I think you had a a review published recently, didn't you? Yeah. So um, a couple of colleagues, um, uh, Kelly Ridley, who's the other um, addiction psychiatrist in Albany, and a a colleague of of ours from uh, Next Step, um, uh, Dr. Mike Christmas, who's GP and addiction specialist. Yeah, he was the one that was on our podcast. Oh, I thought, yeah. I thought as much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very sensible fella. Uh, yeah. um, we did a narrative um, review of the, the literature and the evidence um, around mandatory treatment, in particular of methamphetamine, of people who suffer from methamphetamine use disorders. Um, I, I um, And my interest in that came from my own training in um, New South Wales when um, their new involuntary um, Drug and Alcohol Treatment Act came into effect. I was training at the time and got to experience it firsthand. And I don't think that there's many people in, in Western Australia who, who have experienced or um an understanding of um, mandatory treatment regimes. It came up a, a few years ago in the previous government, you know, because I think politically it's a very expedient um, uh, solution. It's just one of those simple, you know, simple one-liners to a complex problem. Mm-hmm. And um, and the the irony is is that the evidence behind mandatory treatment regimes is really poor. It's actually non-existent. So there's two two forms of mandatory treatment regimes. One is is considered coercive treatment, and that's there is some evidence to coercive treatment. So these are situations where people do still get a choice, and it's usually in Australia in the in the criminal justice system after they've um, sadly committed an offence uh, that they either choose to go through the criminal justice system or in a coercive way can get drug treatment or alcohol treatment. And um, those regimes have been demonstrated through the literature, um, through multiple reviews, systematic reviews, and through our um, uh, findings as well to have some some benefit. Um, they seem to be cost-effective, um, but they're not equally accessible. So they, there's problems with them depending on the offence that you've committed, depending on where you are. And so they're not terribly equitable, but they seem to be um, uh, perhaps a, an intervention that has some evidence and, and worth, worth our attention. Um, there's uh, 30% of, of people in the states who go through, in the United States, who go through coercive treatment regimes um, are usually methamphetamine affected. And so there's, a, there's some evidence specifically to methamphetamine that they have a role to play. Um, uh, and so um, one wonders whether if, if there's a discussion in Australia that that's really where we should be putting our our eggs. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the other form of mandatory treatment, which we refer to as involuntary treatment or civil commitment, and that means that um, all the, the prerequisite is just to have a substance problem, usually associated with significant risk, um, uh, and, and that's what leads you to come, you know, interface with a, a mandatory regime, uh, in, involuntary or civil commitment regime. There, there is very little evidence that that's helpful. 
Um, there was a recent review of the Involuntary Drug and Alcohol Treatment Act in um, in New South Wales, which um, largely said the same, although it's a very expensive um, uh, program that the government needs to support <laughs> itself in doing, and so they try to spin it as much as possible. They, they do get some um, good benefits, but the benefits look like the intensity of the resources and the treatment that are offered, not the involuntary bit. And so, and then when you when you also look, which our paper specifically looked at, of the context of methamphetamine um, uh, use problems, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that an involuntary system actually helps. And so here we were in um, in WA, you know, I can't remember how many years ago, maybe. Um, 10 years ago, um, discussing it. Um, and there's been a little murmurings of discussion around um, involuntary treatment again in, in Western Australia, yet there's no evidence. It's not cost effective, there's associated harms, and also what's the opportunity cost. We've got, and you, you know, you would only have to ask members of the community who are affected by methamphetamine or have a loved one affected by methamphetamines how hard it is to get voluntary treatment <laughs> in Western Australia, um, let alone expensive, non-effective, you know, potentially harmful um, regimes that go against some of some of your human rights. At one point, it was looking like. Um, uh, and, and an important aspect is to make sure that if, if at least um, uh, jurisdictions that are consider involuntary treatment regimes, that they apply the same human rights and principles that we do for mental disorders like psychosis and the like. Um, uh, and that includes a number of tests of capacity and risk and oversight. But um, at one point, it was looking like in WA there was going to be a two-tiered system: one for people with mental illness and one for people with substance problems. Mm. We've got, I've, we've got as as experts in the field, I've got serious problems in this, and so we tried to look at the evidence. and And uh, this paper demonstrates that that um, there are serious issues mm. around involuntary treatment regimes, civil commitment regimes, and maybe there's some evidence behind drug courts and um, mm -hmm. diversion or coercion regimes, and that's where we should be going. It seems like there's a lot of people who are strong advocates for this, you know, stick rather than carrot approach. Um, one that comes to mind is a, a well-known independent senator from Tasmania who had, a, I think, a son that had a, a meth problem. Um, and that they seem to have an opinion that's derived from their own intuition or whatnot that you know we, families should be able to put their kids into involuntary treatment if they if they need to and you know this this sort of stuff even adult children um, yeah. but and these types of things are obviously they've been you know said for years and years like obviously a tough on crime tough on drugs approach seems to pervade a lot of West Western society oh, and Eastern societies as well. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it, it's almost like we're in an echo chamber, and it just kept, that message mm. keeps repeating. Well, I think it's a, a natural response, a projection of your will. <laughs> you know, if I can will it enough, maybe it'll happen. And and when you infuse that with despair, anger, distress, you know, um, these aren't affective states that make you reflective. <laughs> Yeah, they they um, come with uh, a strength and conviction that how I feel and what I want is right, and um, and and I don't I don't doubt 
the the intentionality of people wanting to um, affect change, I guess as a as a clinician, but also as a scientist, that's okay. I can understand, but let's look at the evidence. Let's actually look because that's what counts. And I'm sure mm. that families want outcomes, and and the outcomes. And so I I guess it's sort of redirecting that distress, that despair, the anger, and the projection of will back to the evidence and, you know, redirecting people's attention to perhaps this is, you know, better approached as a resourcing problem for, for when people are prepared to actually change. One of, the, one of the key issues that's misunderstood around addictions is that, um, and it's um, uh, yeah, um, partly associated with some of the theoretical constructs around addiction and the trans-theoretical models of change. Anyone that's been to university done addiction <laughs> just understood what I've said, you know, and and our propensity to call people pre-contemplators, mm. meaning that people that, have, um, that are addicted to substances don't want to change. Well, when you ask people in certain ways, do they want to do something different and they can't and they've tried and they struggle, they'll inevitably tell you no thanks. But but most, you know, I, I actually give the benefit of the doubt that people who are addicted to substances would much prefer not to be. Mm. And so I don't even think that that's really up for discussion. What they need is opportunities, resources, a lending hand to get there because most of the time people will turn around of their own volition and have, have a crack. The problem is they often need multiple cracks because it's hard yakka and they need the, the, the services that welcome them in for help, that accept their frailties and the fact that they might fail that welcomes them back again that throws resources at them to to get the outcomes because these are often younger people who have productive lives ahead of them and if you can give you know it's worth our investment but but that requires that calm positive um, accepting space and and mm. of course you know um, when you're intimately affected by someone whose life is out of control and dangerous and um, stealing from you, and you know it's hard to find that space. And so I don't, I don't judge those people at all. Um, and part part of the the um, approach to this paper was to say, well, let's have a look at this. Let's try and because it hasn't been done, let's look at the evidence and hopefully identify what factors account and so that um, if if we're able to get um, people aware of the evidence then perhaps we can invest in what works to get outcomes and that's about more opportunities more resources uh, intensive comprehensive care you know one of the things that we reviewed in this paper was a was a regime that that just would not get air in Australia. It's called contingency management. <clears throat> and the, the premise of contingency management is to reward people for not using. Now, from a policy point of view, could you imagine trying to get that through the goals in Australia? We're going to give substance, people with substance use problems, we're going to give them a reward for not using. What we do in Australia is we actually do the opposite. We punish them. Mm. You know, we put them on welfare cards and you can't have control over this, that and the other. And <clears throat> yet the evidence says that if you reward people, 
you get better outcomes. Now, the the common the most common argument is, oh yeah, but they'll use those. You know, if you pay them to be clean, they'll use it on substances. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes. You know, yeah. sometimes they will. Uh, and when you take it away from them, guess what? Sometimes they'll still use and they'll steal and you know, um, but. The evidence shows us that contingency management gets good results. Mm. So we've got a lot of maturing as a as a uh, as a society and as a as a community because we can't rely on our politicians to lead the way. We have no. to, you know, it's the time of popularism. We have to, as a community, say, hang on, you know, why aren't we doing these things that the evidence shows us work? So you know. Um, yeah, this, uh, you can see I'm, I've got a full <laughs> solid career ahead of me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure won't get won't be successful and my you know, the people behind me will have more than enough opportunities to keep pushing this barrow because there's a, <laughs> we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Evidence seems to be a uh, an inconvenience in public policy a lot of the time. It seems, you know, it's 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 not supporting the argument I'm trying to get through. So, let's find some some other expert. You know, maybe it's only one expert who's saying something different, and we'll go with their their report or their their version of events. You know, it seems to happen in in environmental policy. You know, health policy, justice policy, education. Education. Yeah. yeah. I I think that's probably a separate podcast and one that <laughs> yeah. I won't be invited to because it's um, you know, it's a it's a part of um, modern times is not information mm. and the way it's distributed and translated and um, yeah. but um, um, you know hopefully I guess as um, academic institutions if we can you know we need to be able to speak um, beyond the science and the the translation into um, policy and um, and provide that you know, that leadership. And it sometimes means, I think, putting your head above the parapet and sometimes it gets shot off, you know, or mm. it can do, or it can feel like it. But yeah. that's 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 the new um, um, moral challenge for academics, I think, in, a, in an age of, you know, information. And I think that's a, that's a historical thing as well because a lot of people that do make history in, in scientific achievements do get shut off the pedestal um, and then later everyone's like, oh, yeah, that probably was right. Uh, so, you know, it, yeah. it's good to be kind of the leader in things like that, I feel. That's right. It goes all the way back to CY O'Connor is a good example. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and, indeed. And the chap who uh, discovered that surgeons or obstetricians were infecting their patients back in, oh, in Hungary, yeah. a Hungarian doctor that ended up getting put into a, a mental hospital because yeah. he said that you guys are actually... I feel like we were talking about this recently. Yeah, I think we have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it actually came up on QI one time a few years ago. I can never remember the guy's name, but it's a Hungarian guy. He actually died well, in the yeah. You know, there's all sorts of um, um, interfaces with whatever you do or your listeners do or I do in terms of um, our um, academic work. And, um, you know, one of those interfaces also, even with simple things like, um, you know, whistleblowing legislation and laws and being able to speak out when there's a public interest. And, and we are a long way behind on getting that right in Australia. We actually, you know, punish people who are doing the right thing yeah. and speaking out. And so, um, um, 
that's why that's broadly what I'm referring to is that sort of maturing of of our society and um, not just responding to the unfortunate dog whistles that can occur and you know yeah. digesting sitting with complex facts and sitting with uncertainty and um, and distress. Well, yeah, my my work as a psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, I, th- I think that's coincided with a, a fairly long period of conservative government here as well, you know, and, and they sort of use security and these sorts of things as a, as a bit of a smokescreen for getting away with it. You know? Yeah, and, uh, well, it's probably all sides of politics these days, in the, you know, and, um, and, and um, it, it's... Um, it, you know, I guess it, it positions um, academic institutions and science um, importantly as um, the, um, you know, I say this with caveats, the independent sources of truth and the importance of um, organisations like ours in committing to and ensuring a robust system of inquiry and um uh you know transparency so really important roles of universities and and academic institutions that that play in in civil society i think Mm. well it's been a great conversation matt and not i know we haven't uh, touched on absolutely everything that we kind of wrote down but we haven't (laughs) talked about like young people or the rural aspect you didn't ask me any of those questions (laughs) we just kind of like get distracted in all of the other like really interesting stuff yeah but i think it's i think a lot of the stuff we've talked about is you know relevant and and really important and and happening right now and needs to happen more in the future so yeah i don't feel like it's been wasted conversation at all Um, yeah, Hopefully was, we can take up rural rural stuff in the future. Yeah, well, it's another well, important social um, so, so social justice um, cause. Oh, definitely. And, yeah, needs attention. Exactly, and uh, perhaps we will have to get you back on in the not too distant future and and just keep the conversation confined to to that. We did the same Great. thing with um with Taryn, where we just got so like interested in little aspects of his life that we didn't get to the main topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's he's due to come back on the podcast to discuss. That's um, Taran Weiramanthri. He, he did yeah. a climate health report recently and that was the premise that we got him on the show for, but his career is so interesting that we just ended up talking about that instead. So, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to that one yeah, soon. Yeah, I feel like we've done the same with you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'd, I'd say we've definitely got a, a whole podcast in, in rural psychiatry and, and some of the issues. Indeed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But thanks very much for your time today. And uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, we'll look forward to having you back on at some stage. Thank you. Cheers. And that was our conversation with Matthew Coleman. I feel like he has got some fascinating opinions on things. Mm. Like there's so much left unexplored and I have so many more questions I could ask, I feel. But, yeah, interesting. Just a really great perspective uh, from a human perspective. Yeah. Really just obviously he's a, a doctor that understands people and understands their needs and whilst he might not have been in the exact circumstances a lot of the people he deals with are in, he can kind of put himself in their shoes a little bit and see where they've come from and why they might, you know, be having the sorts of health issues that they are having. Yeah, definitely. And, and rather look than looking to punish people, 
looking to try and help them in some way and not banish them to the back of the queue or outside of the hospital or, you know, mm. because maybe their behaviour is a bit challenging or a bit difficult or, you know. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think um, not just here in, in WA but I think globally there's always been a, a lean towards punishment mm. rather than reward, even though even I remember learning about this in psychology of like the positive and negative behaviour yeah. and reward and punishment and stuff and rewards have always worked better yeah i think you know some, one thing that we didn't really touch on although he sort of did touch on it was um that you know we get better results when we reward people for not doing the wrong yeah. the wrong thing or the you know the unhealthy thing in in the case of taking drugs um but then people point to the the one or two examples of the person that they rewarded who then still went and used the drugs, but they mm-hmm. forget about the 80% of people or what you know, whatever that did actually benefit from it. And it's always did. the interesting story that stands out yeah. rather than the, the most common outcome, That's I feel, it. unless the most common outcome is exciting. And They always that. say that you'll if you've got bad news, you'll tell 20 people. If you've got good news, you'll tell a couple. Exactly, yeah. life, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, really fascinating conversation there. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, really great. Yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts about it. And if you do want to get in touch with us. Ah, I think I know this. <laughs> you can email, it, email us at uh, meaningofhealth at outlook.com. Yep. Those words just did not work for me then. <laughs> um, you can also tweet us at health means what. So please get in contact with us. We'd love to hear your feedback and comments and questions and um, whatever else you want to send us. We'd love to hear from you. Always. We're always keen to, to hear feedback. And, yes, that's right. And speak with uh, listeners. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have any suggestions for people you'd like to hear from on the podcast, then please let us know. Definitely. Uh, always looking for people i think yeah that's it anyway that's it for this week uh we hope you guys enjoyed it and we'll look forward to speaking to you again really soon the meaning of health podcast is produced with the support of the school of population and global health and the education enhancement unit at the university of western australia the podcast is produced by craig cumming and courtney weber with music by craig cumming